What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we have Joe Walker. Now, we've already interviewed Joe Walker, so if you haven't heard that interview, I encourage you to go listen to it. In it, we talk about Sicario. In this episode, we're going to talk about Arrival, Denis Villeneuve's new film. And I can't encourage you enough to go see it. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal film. The other reason you should go see it is because we're going to spoil a lot of it. We get right into it and we just start talking about various plot points and storylines that might reveal too much for you. But I encourage you to listen to this because we get into a lot of really interesting topics. So go watch the film, come back. And listen to this podcast. Now, one of the things we don't talk about in this episode is we don't talk about tone. And the reason is, is because we talk a lot about tone in our discussion about Sicario. So I felt we'd focus on other things, such as time manipulation. So, again, if you haven't heard the Sicario interview, go look it up, aotg.com slash cutting room, and you can find it in the list there. If you have, enjoy this podcast. And again, I can't encourage you enough to go see this film, Arrival. So with all that said, here's my interview with Joe Walker. To start off, what did you learn from working with Villeneuve on Sicario that you've brought to this project and were able to use in your editing process? Well, I mean, it's a great advantage working with somebody. I've been very lucky, you know, working with somebody who's a second or a third time. We're now on our third film. And of course, I've had that with Steve McQueen. You know, we did three films together. And it means you're very much emboldened and trusted. And, you know, the formula works. And I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, Denny is uh, just a magnificent, both those directors, just fantastic people to learn from and, and experiment with. And, you know, in both, they're actually more similar than dissimilar in many ways. You know, there's a, there's a certain alchemy that happens in their cutting rooms and they the thing I particularly love with with them is they talk to me the way that they would probably talk to an actor so you know they'll identify a problem or they'll talk about you know give me a thought on a scene but they don't dictate exactly how to get there they would leave it to me to kind of find a solution within the material i know very well so you manage to still own the process in some way even though you're working in collaboration and you know for a great director it's it just brings all your passion to the project and you know, we worked very hard together and we did on arrival, but it was in the company of somebody who I had a lot of respect for. So it's really the best kind of process. With Sicario, specifically to your question, I mean, while we were working on Sicario, I kept overhearing these phone conversations uh, Denny was having in the corridor outside. So uh, I'd often overhear a conversation that went a bit like this. I'd hear his voice saying, perhaps we should think about having no mouth at all. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, or maybe we should contemplate no eyes. And I kept thinking, what is this project? You know, and then I got to read it and I was really fascinated and very, very glad I got the gig, especially because, you know, the subject matter is very much in the heart of editing uh, to do with time, nonlinear time. And, you know, I always think, time is the editor's superpower mm-hmm. particularly with a project like that where you have a lot of free material that's very poetic and lyrical and could really be in any order and in fact after the first assembly 
when we looked at it together in Montreal, then he said to me, you know, it's, um, this is a documentary, you know, from all this material, we need to find our film. So, you know, the approach was very free and it felt I had a lot to do, you know, with uh, rendering that story, you know, in the right order. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Now, I, so many things that you, you've mentioned here that I have questions, um, but I'm going to dive into the idea of time and editing. And I guess starting with the pacing, because the film is so, well, like you said, it's like, it's very poetic in how it rolls out or reveals the story. So I'm wondering, how did you work with Villeneuve to sort of get the structure and the pacing working for this film so that the audience is constantly moving forward, but you can still be slow and, and methodical at, at certain moments? Well, there are a number of key moments where we wanted the pace to remain quite stately because, you know, we felt there was a lot of suspense and tension to be wrought out of it. So, you know, we really took our time in the scenes where Louise and Ian first go into the shell, and it felt like we had a powerful tension there that... Um, we didn't want to race. And then, you know, the larger kind of concerns were about delivering a twist. So for us to land the real truth about what's happening to this woman at the end of the film, we had to be generous as storytellers. And, you know, it's one of those very difficult things to gauge because you have to test against an audience. And when we were viewing the film in the early stages, there were some things that people didn't get. I mean, a very, very uh, clever friend of ours came to see the film and had an explanation for what had happened that was completely, well, wrong isn't the right word, but, you know, it was far adrift from what we intended. So it was a question of trying to kind of make sure that that person would have a much clearer idea of what was going on, but not to be too far behind her. So it's one of those measurements against an audience. And I think the screening process is probably the best way to discover what the problems are there. The other you know, aspect of it is trying to kind of marble the film through with these flashes to this child by a lake and lakeside house. And um, they really were free to be in any order at all. And it was in editing terms, it was a question of juxtaposing those images in the right place and at the right time. And I had a lot of material that was shot in that location. I also had a lot of shots of Amy being troubled by a thought or an idea or a memory. So it was just, you know, making sure that even though those fragments don't necessarily have huge clues or direct pertinence sometimes, that they were just in the right place and for the right length of time. I mean, I always loved, there's a flash at one point to the child standing in front of a horse. And it just felt that uh, it was one of the early flash flashes that Louise has. And she's just, you know, it comes hot on the heels of her very sort of close encounter with one of the heptapods. And it felt like that... Um, you know, it was a resonant image to put in and we always felt the heptapods could be almost like elephants in the mist. You know, you sort of really gradually get to know them. So the other element of pacing, I'd say, is also how much we reveal about the aliens and the heptapods when you first see them are just in the distance and through smoke. And then we're always trying to keep some element of surprise so that you, as you get close to them, as she takes off her hazmat suit and she comes up close to the screen, you get a chance to really investigate the skin texture, for example. And I definitely held those shots long 
which is always a hard thing to do when you're editing without CGI. You know, two of the major characters were missing for a large part of post-production because all we had to go on was our instincts as to how long to hold things. And I always fancied it would be a good thing to allow the audience to invest and read and feel and respond, you know, rather than the thing flashing past in a dizzy. I noticed that in the first time we see the aliens, the whole scene like from getting into the spaceship and figuring out that you have to walk sideways or sort of shift your gravity up to the actual reveal. What I found really interesting about that is how drawn out that moment was or how the time sort of stretches out yeah because you know i'm sitting Mm. there i'm like i just really want to see these aliens and for whatever reason i'm like i it was became very suspenseful so how do you when you're building something like that scene how did you choose between withholding the reveal and building suspense and pushing the story forward well i think it was just a delicate balance trying not to milk it but also trying to create an atmosphere a mood of, um, I mean, actually, I think there's a really good word for this, which is liminality. You know, if my my ex-wife worked in museums and galleries, and she always used to use this word, and it's that kind of mood you get when you enter a space like a, a church or an art gallery. And it's a hard word to define, but it was, there's something almost religious that we could turn that walk into a procession. And in fact, the music, I think, Johann's music in some way reflects some sense of an arcane ritual of some kind, a processional. And, you know, there was plenty of ways to kind of keep the drive, but at a very slow tempo. And then, you know, in fact, when we finally reveal the aliens, it's quite a quick moment. It's over in just a few shots and you're left with somebody in a blind panic, not knowing what to do, which, you know, all of us can (laughs) empathize with in that situation. So I don't know, it felt, I mean, Denny is a master of suspense and tension. And we found that on Sicario, you know, that there's a huge buildup to the gunfight on the bridge. I mean, I think it's about 15 minutes of build to that moment and it's over in seconds. You know, it's just, this short burst of ultraviolence and delivered at the end of a long stretched anticipation of it. And that just feels like, you know, that's heaven for an editor to play with that material. I was thinking about, you know, when the the soldiers put the bomb in the spaceship Mm. afterwards, all I could think about was the Hitchcock Truffaut interview where he talks about placing the bomb Mm. under the table and then setting the scene and then allowing the scene to play out and how suspenseful that was. Yes. I mean, I was going to read that interview again while we were cutting that (laughs) scene because I remembered that reference. And like so many things, it's, uh, I mean, I've talked to people and they said, what other films were a reference to you? And in fact, you know, there's, we've all seen tens of thousands of hours yeah. of drama. And in a way, it didn't feel right to go and see Contact or, you know, Close Encounters again, because we've all seen them and they've influenced us. And, you know, I'm trying to respond to the material I've got rather than other people's material. So <laughs> I have the same feeling with Hitchcock, you know, the Hitchcock interview. I, I, I was very conscious of it, but I... I didn't go and seek it out in case it went opposite <laughs> to my instinct in some way. Or, or your memory, right? Because like it, I always find that I remember films slightly different than what they are, and then I rewatch them. So it's reading that yes. book, it might be completely different yeah. from what you remember it. Well, it's nice to kind of cite something as an influence without actually having seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
but it was like some of the kind of uh, most interesting stuff for us as well was building because of the choice was made that we wouldn't, you know, feature as a parallel story, for example, in China or in the UK or in Africa. We had to kind of build that outside world and, you know, everything that they shot was green screen. We had to kind of start from scratch to build up the world falling apart, disintegrating into some terrible paranoia and mutual suspicion. And that was another, you know, that's story, but it's also pacing of trying to kind of build that outside force through screens and there's lots and lots of screens in the film and it felt you know that's i think one of the decisions that they made was that the world that she inhabits on the army base is filled with laptops and skype screens and computer monitors and a very big white screen inside the shell where they witnessed the heptapods but you know, contrary to that, you had this completely beautiful counterpoint of the world of the mother and child by the lake where there's no screens or very little, nothing like it, as far as I can remember. And this totally different color palette that Bradford Young so beautifully shot. So it's, um, yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of elements to control. It was really fun. There's a lot of rich material to kind of, to get it to belong together. You earlier in, in our talk, you had mentioned that because it was a story about time, you got to play with time a lot. So as an editor, how did you, or I guess, could you elaborate on that? Like, how did you get to play with time in this film? This is my big obsession in life. I mean, I think time is our superpower as editors. And, you know, you only have to look at Shakespeare. I think there's nothing approaching a proper flashback. I mean, Shakespeare couldn't use flashbacks. We've got that tool in our box. And in pacing terms, we can expand a moment and look, you know, like a car crash, you know, or that moment when you're driving and somebody peels out in front of you uh, without indicating, you know, those little moments where your sense of time warp. And I'm fascinated by that. And of course, we can jump in time. And when you you know, I think there's nothing more satisfying for an audience when they know where something's going to then jump to it. Missing out all the steps in between is it's just super satisfying to have that little ecstatic jump in time. There was a really good one in Shame that I was very happy with where Brandon's boss is flirting with Brandon's sister and they, we end the scene with the two of them flirting and ordering champagne. And then we cut straight to the back of a cab and... Michael Fassbender's looking out of the window in one direction and his boss and his sister are snogging in the back of the car. You know, you go from intention to result in one twenty-fourth of a second. And there was a lot of intervening material where they held the cab and were drunk and this beautiful Jules Jim scene that Steve shot. But I cut it out one time and looked at it and showed it to Steve and we never put it back in because it was such a kind of beautiful jump. And I'm you know, in a wider sense, I'm kind of fascinated as well by the neuroscience of it. And there's a lot of people studying the way the brain edits. And there's some very, I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into too much detail on this, but... Are you talking about like, because uh, I've been reading that stuff too. So there's like the stuff out of California and then there's the stuff out of the UK. One's eye tracing mm. and the other's sort of the brain waves when they see the cuts. That's right. But what I, the one that fascinated me was, um, you know how often neuroscience studies things through anomalies? I mean, you know, they often look at people with brain damage to see what's different. And one of the anomalies I really loved that they studied, I can't tell you where, I could try and find out, was that 
is the clock anomaly where you're the situation is this you are maybe coming out into a large public space and your eye scans for a clock to confirm the time maybe you're catching a train or a plane and if the clock has a second hand there is sometimes an anomaly where you find the clock and you look at it for a moment and think that it's stuck or, or stopped and then the second hand moves and then it seems to work at a more regular pace. And there's this odd moment where you think, how comes my eye a lit on the clock at exactly the same time as it froze? Yeah. What that ex- suggests is that the brain has cut a lot of material out of you searching, your eye scanning, and it fills in the gap with the first thing that your eye arrives at. So it actually fills in the gap of time, so only a tiny microsecond, but it means that for that first second, it feels longer because your brain has made it longer. It's cut all the stuff out in the middle, and I'm rather fascinated by the the sense that, you know, nobody lives in the moment, as the hippies used to say in the 60s. (laughs) There's a lot of super processing going on, and, you know, time is a super flexible element. I mean, the fact that nobody really even knows if it exists um, chemically or is identified with any particular synaptic movement is suggests it's a very mysterious thing indeed. And as an essence, you know, trying to bring that to filmmaking is a little difficult. <laughs> it's <just laughs> an esoteric conversation, but, you know, I kind of always think that that's the joy in life is that I can play with the pacing of things. And sometimes Especially, you know, you cut a scene and it's bound by continuity and, you know, in your first cuts, you'll often pay your respects to the continuity of a scene and smooth things out. And I'm always hiding myself and trying to kind of make, you know, my cuts kind of blend into the scene. But then occasionally, you know, disturbing that gives you a great result. There's a very good example in in Arrival, I think, which is there's a nightmare scene. And I don't know if you remember, but there's uh, halfway through the film with the alien sitting right next to her. Yes, yeah, in her in her yeah, army yeah. quarters. I mean, how that came about was a real joy <laughs> because the scene was a normal scene. It was originally the scene went into a different direction, and basically there was this large piece of tubing in the film that we wanted to get rid of. Originally, you know, her deteriorating state of mind caused alarm and. Colonel Weber, who was standing above her at the foot of her bed, ends the scene by saying, you know, until we know what's wrong with you, we're going to bench you. And the mission gets taken over by Donnelly, and then several scenes later, it returns back into her control. But it was like, a, an, for us in story terms, an unnecessary red herring. And it was all great stuff, but we had to kind of make some economy. So we cut the whole scene out. I mean, it was just a normal scene where... Ian comes around, sits next to her and says, you know, I've read about the Sapper Wharf theory and the idea that immersing yourself in another language rewires brain. And she says, yes, but, you know, I'm fit enough for this mission. And we had this, we took it out and then we realized nobody in the film articulates that thought. And it's a very useful clue as to what's going on. And without it, it, the film suffered a little bit. So me and Denny were in the cutting room one day in Montreal, and he said, well, what about, why don't we just put together the bits of the scene that don't take us down that rabbit hole? And let's see if there's any way we can construct a scene without it. And it felt like a tall order because I knew, you know, once you cut to Weber, then the scene goes into that direction. And it's very hard to kind of cut out of it. But we ended up joining three or four pieces of footage together. And the first thing that was great was you went from a 
shot of Ian to another shot of Ian, very similar shot. And, you know, his head's down, now it's up. And her head is pointing left when it was right. And, you know, it's a really jarring jump cut. And then the next thing we had was Amy, a close-up, and she's constantly looking off screen, originally to Weber, but we never cut to Weber. And that was the day that we saw the first animation test of this um, heptapod moving through missed and it was a walk test you know an animation walk test and then he just said well let's put the alien at the bottom of her bed and that jump cut was just so effective at saying there's something wrong and then on the soundtrack we added the sound of the canary so again there's another thing that's wrong and then there's a sort of doomy tone so third clue that not all is as it seems and then a cut to a heptapod and then louise waking up and we had a really excellent way of going into her head and it told us about her state of mind and it gave us a theory as to what was going on in her mind and it also meant that she was dreaming about ian which was psychologically good you know to platform a sense of attachment to him for later in the film so i don't know that was a little bit of alchemy in the cutting room where time and the fact that you have a sort of garish jump cut in the middle of it, which is so different from the rest of the film, which is very metrical and rhythmic and relatively smooth, I would say. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> to have something kind of quite garish was, we never changed it. I mean, that was just exactly how it landed on our timeline. And, um, you know, with a bit of work on the sound, we had um, a new sequence. So, yeah, time is uh, is our superpower. I think we'll have to make a T-shirt that says that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody else gets to play with it. I mean, I once had a review of something I worked on, and I was really infuriated that they, the reviewer said the cameraman really knows how long to hold yeah. a shot. <laughs> I was like, hey, mister. Now... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you can tell me about working with Johan again with this music. You know, it's very, it has some similarities to Sicario. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you relied on the original Sicario music just to get you through until he had created it or if you worked with him during the cutting process. Well, we did. I mean, on Sicario and on Arrival, we try to avoid music as far as possible for as long as possible in the editing. I mean, on arrival during the shoot, I think, Denny handed me a track that Johan had sent. He sent two or three tracks, and one of them was the very weird vocal sound with a kind of strange piano loop. Is that the one that, sorry, I was going to say, is that because there's one that sounded almost like whales making noise? Yeah, you you hear it when they fly to the spaceship for the very first time, and it's got this kind of circular pattern, which is really beautiful, and the sound underneath it is a drone that's made of piano notes overlaid on each other, but without hearing the attack of the note, it's just more the vibration of the instrument. So that was just written not to picture or anything, it was just a track that was sent, and it was just so blindingly good. Like Sicario, we just had a moment where we leapt around the cutting room. (laughs) (laughs) Very excited. But really, during apart from that piece, or maybe one other, there was nothing in the first assembly. And the reason behind that is just a choice. I mean, I come from a music background. I was a composer and I'm very nervous about over-reliance on on uh, temp tracks. I think they are unfair to composers because they tie their hands behind their backs before they've had a chance to respond to a tabula rasa. And 
Also, it means in edit, in sound terms, it prohibits the investigation of silence and the investigation of sound effects. So I like, if possible, to do things with an atmosphere or a mood or in 12 Years of Slave Cicadas, for example, or in Sicario, there were long periods where we didn't need music and it was just good to get the cut in such a good place that it also, you know, you, you end up um, with John Williams dictating the pace of your movie rather than the story and the performance. So the same happened on Arrival. We tried as much to avoid uh, any temp tracks and also just tried to only use Johan's music. And then the next big piece I think he turned in was this incredible music for a montage that we created in the middle of the film, which is there's a section where we go into voiceover and it was originally five or six scenes in the shell and we just felt we wanted to condense them and deliver the information in a different way than you know another sequence inside the shell and it was also a chance to kind of spend a bit of time with Ian's character and also crack a joke about Sheena Easton so we had <laughs> lots of reasons to do this montage and I sent a kind of cut to Johan quite early and he sent back this extraordinary piece with this kind of uh, chirping vocal sound. I mean, most of the soundtrack is vocal in Origins, which felt very right for the subject about language and humanity. So, yeah, by and large, we just went hand in hand together and it was a really good collaboration. I mean, your hand's a fantastic collaborator. You know, the way it works between us is he'll send me a track and I'll cut it about and I'll sort of maybe use it. He leaves us to choose where it goes and then he just flies with it once we send it back to him and he makes adjustments and um you know different drafts and and so we go on so yeah i'm very excited to carry on working with him he's a great composer he's working on blade runner 2049 correct he is he is (laughs) there's big boots to fill i mean vangelis score is daunting now i have to ask this question it's a really i guess pompous question (laughs) but Villeneuve is like all his films raise these philosophical questions and sort of pose them to the audience of like what would you do and so I'm wondering like what are your discussions like in the cutting room are they very philosophical or like or is it more work-based no we crack jokes and uh, make each other laugh all the time (laughs) (laughs) we really do yeah I mean he's he's an incredibly funny man to be with and it's not quite as serious as perhaps, I mean, the same with Steve. I mean, you know, very often we'd be listening to things on iTunes together <laughs> and, and joking about life in Ealing in the 70s, you know. I mean, it's, um, you spend a lot of time with uh, directors and, you know, you know, he's to my right and they're every day and we work very hard. And, I mean, I do love the fact that he's a family man, so weekends he tries to avoid working us all you know into the ground and we just work very hard and we don't sit around and talk about girlfriends or (laughs) yeah you know not too much detail on that you know just there's a professional distance but i'm we're very i'm I'm very very fond of him as a human being and the conversation is very wide-ranging i mean i find with denny it's a real chance to on both sicario and arrival i was not on set i was far away i cut remotely in la while they were working either in new mexico or in um well they were in albuquerque uh, for sicario and they were in montreal for arrival and 
there was no need for me to come out there and he's very well prepared and planned and these days I can send a, a cut on Aspera and he can watch it that night and I can phone him and say, you know, we can exchange views on on material as it goes along. So, and in some way, I quite like that remove. But then when we join together in post-production, then you're spending weeks and weeks and weeks and you really get to find out what the intentions were and try in some way sometimes to return the film to the original intention. And, you know, Denny always had a lot of respect for the short story. And it's very difficult to say this without sounding like I'm dissing the screenplay, which I think is brilliant. But, you know, editing is the culmination of all the crafts. You know, it's the end of all the camera work and the performance and the directing and the art department and the music. And you're taking it to its final shape. So that work continues and it's a sort of position of responsibility. But a key ingredient in that is really getting to know what your director set out to find. And in some ways trying to um, keep the clay wet and try and render the perfect shape, you know? Now, I have one last question. And, and last time I asked you about your favorite guilty pleasure film, but you mentioned that you got, you and Denis would listen to iTunes or podcasts. Uh, so what are some of the things you listen to in, in your cutting room? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that was actually Steve oh, okay, McQueen. Sorry. I meant, um, uh, he, yeah, no, I mean, he's, what were I listening to with Denny? I mean, you know, we would show each other things on Facebook, I'm afraid, like everybody else. (laughs) The one big thing that was going on during Arrival was the rise of Donald Trump. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of discussion of that. (laughs) And I'm trying to think about music. It's funny that, you know, Denny will sometimes play me something. There was something he played me quite recently, and it just took my breath away because it's something I've loved for years. And, you know, I think we piece from the same pod. We were both very sad about Leonard Cohen last week. And, uh, you know, oh, I, wow. Yeah, that was terrible. Really terrible. I'm just terrible timing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I've just been listening to the album, you know, Make It Darker. I've been listening to it over and yeah, over. It's been so on, good. Yes. Yeah, such a great album, such poignant lyrics, and he's he's always been my go-to guy when you're feeling a little blue. You know, he just seems to kind of express yeah. things so perfectly. I think Denny actually even credited Lennon Cohen, Lennon Cohen at the end. He, he sent a message to Lennon Cohen at the end of one of his films. Oh, I can't yeah. remember which one, but I think <laughs> it, it's at the end of Enemy or Anson B or something. There's a little message for Lennon Cohen. <laughs> So that was my interview with Joe. Of course, I really want to thank Joe for sitting down with me again. I'm excited because he's currently working on Blade Runner 2049. He's heading back to LA right now. They're going to be wrapping it up. It's very exciting. Hopefully next year we'll sit down and continue this discussion that we seem to have been going into. So I'd like to thank Joe. I'd like to thank his team that helped connect us and got us together. Of course, I'd also like to thank the American Cinemators for everything they do for us. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.